0: Today, I'm going to give you all a very queer sermon, and I hope you're ready for it. But don't worry, there's something in this for everyone. We try to be inclusive of all experiences here at Forefront, but this is one of our core values, in fact. Um, The the sermon, sermon, though, is not going to be about why and how the church should affirm and include queer people, although... It certainly is a very needed message, but I feel like we've done that sermon that's kind of 101. Today we're going to do 201, I feel like we're ready for that, we're going to upgrade, get some more credits in. So our text for today is Acts chapter 8. And shortly before this passage, which will show up, I guess it's already on the board, um, the, the early church experiences its first wave of persecution. So they're, they're fleeing Jerusalem and they're scattered towards Judea and Samaria. So it's a time of kind of evangelism or sort of like spreading of the good news, whatever that means. Hopefully we'll define that towards the end. And so this guy named Philip, he's one of the early disciples, um, gets called by this angel. And the angels commands Philip to go down this road uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza, and so he starts out. And on the way, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, and the scripture says that it's a important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candig, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. It's um, that's actually the title. Some verses have it as Candice It's not someone's name. It's actually just her title. Um, And the other thing to note here is that Ethiopia does not mean the country of Ethiopia because nation states weren't a thing. It was just the Roman way of referring to all countries, all people south of Egypt. So, uh, most likely, this eunuch is from the ancient kingdom of Kush, or Nubia, which is located in South Sudan, and actually, here's a photo of some of the pyramids or monuments that still remain, actually, in South of Sudan that tend to get overlooked in favor of the Egyptian pyramids and what have you. And actually, it's really worth getting to a Wikipedia deep dive into the kingdom of Nubia and the kind of Christian history in which Christian rulers ran. There's a rich history of Christianity in Africa that tends to get overlooked. The other thing we know, um, scholars know, is that the word Ethiopian in Greek um, means literally means burnt face. So essentially, what we have is the first person in the New Testament identified as black, um, which is pretty significant for many reasons and we'll get into more reasons later. The second thing we learn about the eunuch is, um, think of a verse later, is that he is, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was on his way back and returning. And when Philip finds him, the eunuch is reading a scroll. Um, you know, the Bible was a scroll, it was in a book then, and he, it seems like he's having some difficulty reading because it's most likely a bit of a foreign language to them. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch replies, how can I unless someone guides me? So a lot of scholars speculate that given the fact that this eunuch is not from... It's not part of Israel, but is traveling to Jerusalem to worship and coming back and is trying to read um, the Tanakh. The, the scholars speculate that the eunuch is a God-fearer, which is a technical term for someone in between Gentile and Jew. Uh, it's, more, it's more of a Hellenistic, Greco-Roman word. So it, it's, it's someone who observes a lot of traditions of Judaism, perhaps even worships the God of Judaism, worships Yahweh, but has not fully converted. And I, I'm trying to think about what it would have been like for this eunuch to be in Jerusalem in Roman territory. And I suspect it most likely was a little uncomfortable. Because there's a law in the Torah in Deuteronomy 23.1 that says, uh, no one whose testes are crushed or whose member is cut off shall be admitted into the congregation of the Lord. So that injunction is mostly interpreted to, read, uh, to mean a prohibition of eunuchs um, or anyone who's has crushed balls, uh, for entering into the temple or the sacred spaces of Israel. So eunuchs occupied this weird liminal position between Jew and Gentile, but also this liminal kind of outsider-insider position between, in, in terms of their gender. So typically, there are many different kinds of eunuchs, um, but typically refers to boys who are castrated from young. And because of the castration, it affects their hormonal development, such that their features tend to be more feminine, they might have not really have any facial hair on their faces, And in the ancient world, they were seen as sort of sexually passive, effeminate, soft, kind of shameful, especially because the Romans really prized masculinity and really tied masculinity to the ability to penetrate someone sexually. Um, So here's a quote from Philo, a Hellenistic, which just means kind of a Greekophile, uh, Jewish philosopher living in Alexandria in the first century. He provides this interesting commentary on the eunuch. It says, he is neither male nor female for he is incapable of either giving or receiving seed. None such does Moses permit to enter the congregation of the Lord. For what use can he find in listening to the holy words when the knife has cut away the power of faith and the store of the truth? So Phil has some really interesting views of where it is in our body we store faith and truth. Uh, love to take an anatomy class from him. Uh, so, but, you know, he's not that much of an outlier. Like, if you read in Genesis, when uh, Isaac has to, when Abraham, uh, sorry, when Joseph makes an oath to Jacob, and when uh, Ab- uh, Isaac has to make an oath, uh, his Isaac's servant has to make an oath to Isaac, um, They te- there's this phrase where it says they put their hand under a man's thigh, which is basically a euphemism for saying holding the person's testicles. And so, you can see that connection a little bit as to why it is that Philo might say that if we don't have testicles, if they're castrated, you maybe are less capable of making oaths, of being truthful, of being a virtuous person. And in fact, in the Roman world, the word virilitas and virtue come from the same Latin root, which is vir, which means, which is to to be masculine. Masculinity is at the center of virtue. virtue. And so you can see that if you are not, uh, if you do not have certain sexual organs, you are less capable, potentially, of having virtue, less capable of making oaths, of being a virtuous person, a truthful person, a faithful person. So I think it's pretty clear what happens if you you have ovaries instead of um, testicles or where, where this lives you, but where does this leave the eunuch, specifically? Like, where do they fit in this paradigm of those who have testicles and those who do not? Historically, interestingly, because of the eunuchs' interesting liminal status in their gender, they were entrusted with a lot of royal responsibility. So they were both an object of scorn, but also a lot of historical responsibility. They are for instance, entrusted with the, um, the, the keeper of the king's harem. So a lot of people speculate that Potiphar, for instance, in the story of Joseph, was a eunuch. Um, and the reason why they are entrusted with responsibility is because there was no fear they were going to impregnate someone, and this caused legitimacy, legitimacy issues with the royal line. So eunuchs were allowed into women's-only spaces because there's no fear, there are no threat to men's paternity. But they're also allowed into men's spaces to give advice to the king. So, if procreation is the center kind of line that defines male or female in the ancient world, then where does this leave the eunuch, the person that cannot give or receive seed? Philo has this also great passage, I think, which encapsulates, I just really love it, I'm just going to quote the whole thing. Um, It's very fabulous. Uh, Mark how conspicuously they braid and adorn their hair, and how they scrub and paint their faces with cosmetics and pigments and the like. In fact, the transformation of the male nature to the female is practiced by them as an art and does not raise a blush. Certainly, you may see these hybrids of men and women continually strutting through the thick of the market, heading processions at feasts, and appointed to serve as unholy ministers of holy things, leading the mysteries and initiations and celebrating the rites of Demeter, who's a Greek goddess. Those of them who, have, by way of heightening, still further the youthful beauty, have desired to be completely changed into women and gone on to mutilate their genital organs are clad in purple, like signal benefactors of their native lands, each of them a curse and a pollution of his country. Philo seems like it could be great fun to have at a pride party, but... <laughs> But you can see basically what we have here in the book of Acts is potential, is a black, maybe a feminine man, maybe a non binary man, maybe a non binary person, maybe a trans feminine woman. These are like modern language we would use. Obviously, this is a little anachronistic to apply it uh, back then. But the thing I really want to highlight though is that this person, this unique, however, gender terms we would use to describe them, exists outside of the procreation sort of structure. And procreation is very integral um, to Israel if you look through um, the Tanakh you see how how often it is that being childless to be barren is associated with being sort of cursed by God. Um, Because if you don't have descendants, you don't have children, then who will continue your legacy? Who will continue your name? Who will continue your family's property? And so on and so on. So let's jump back into scene in Acts. So now we have a lot more context to what the eunuch is. Um, And the eunuch is reading this passage, specifically the scroll that Philip is helping them kind of navigate. And the passage is, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his descendants? For his life is taken away from the earth. And this is from Isaiah 53. So the eunuch asked, later asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Browder Greer, uh, Episcopal priest, who's also uh, black and queer, makes this point that maybe the eunuch is asking the question because the eunuch sees themselves in this passage. And this is curious. I kind of relate to this person. So tell me, who who is this person? I I want to know. Maybe the part that caught the eunuch's eye was the last few lines. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life is taken away from the earth. Whereas I mentioned earlier, to be without descendants means that your life is erased from this earth as soon as you die. The narrative goes on to say, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And this passage, particularly in Christian tradition, is very much, is, is a sort of a suffering servant passage. It's seen as like a pre-echo pre of Jesus and what Jesus is suffering and all that means to come. And so we don't know what Philip said, but maybe Philip told him that Jesus had no children, that Jesus had no descendants, that Jesus was single, that Jesus entered women's and men's spaces, and Jesus was scorned and despised by the Romans. Maybe the eunuch thought, interesting. And because the Bible was not a book but a scroll, there are no chapter and verses then, um, and actually still now. So, well, in, in the Jewish tradition, in um, the scroll thing, the, the most likely what happens, they're read further down uh, to Isaiah 56, and what is this passage there? Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. So I'm going to pause on this phrase, I am only a dry tree, because I think it has multiple levels of meaning, potentially. On one level, of meaning is a very literal meaning, which is maybe for some people this resonates because they've been trying to have children, but it's been really difficult um, for fertility reasons, financial reasons, legal reasons, what have you. But maybe on another level, it resonates because... You're not interested in having children. You're not, you know, you're happily single, or happily married, with don't want children. But society perceives you as a dry tree, and that stigma is what stings a little bit. When I re- see the phrase "dry tree," I think of family tree, um, you know, the whole sort of great grandparents and beyond and descending down. And I think specifically of a friend of mine who goes to forefront who was telling me the story about how she was dating someone woman for about, you know, close to a year. They were going pretty strong. And her parents said, well, we're going to visit New York City. And my friend says, oh, would you like to meet my girlfriend? You know, you don't have to have a whole dinner, just maybe like 10 minutes, get to know each other. And her parents, you know, politely declined. And that stung. Um, That was hurtful, but my friend didn't think too much about it until Thanksgiving rolled around. And then her brother uh, called home and said, you know, her younger brother, I'm not going to come home this Thanksgiving, mom and dad, uh, or really just mom, uh, because uh, I'm dating someone. We've only been dating for two months, and I just want to hang out with her rather than hang out with you, mom. And our mom says, uh, their mom says, well, then just invite her over. You know, we'll fly over. She can stay in my daughter's room. My daughter seems to be mad at me, she doesn't want to come home for Thanksgiving. Um, so, And then they they do, they fly over, they have a great time, they go shopping together, a little mother, daughter-in-law bonding time, Um, they eat together and it's great. And my friend is fuming, right? She's pissed because she knows that essentially the implication for mother's action is that whatever family she chooses to create with her partner will ultimately be seen as a dead branch on this family tree relative to her brothers. And so it hurts. Let's return to Isaiah 56, because that's not the final word on what being a eunuch means. Um, I'll read it again, and I'll read the rest. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, I will give them, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So you see Isaiah is introducing a very different theme than from Deuteronomy. People who would traditionally be considered as excluded from the temple, um, foreigners, eunuchs, are now, interestingly, given access um, inside the temple. And to be clear, the passage does not say that eunuchs all of a sudden are now priests and they can do everything like fully equal with everyone else, um, but they are treated as much more of insiders as they once were. And Austin Hartke um, wrote this great book, uh, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgendered Christians, notes that the promise to eunuchs in, in Isaiah 56 very much echoes the promise that God makes to Abraham, who's sort of the patriarch of Israel. And in which God promises Abraham and Sarah that they will have descendants and they will have an, he will make them an everlasting covenant that endure um, forever. So I agree with Harkey's analysis. I see the echoes. But I'll actually go a little bit further. Because God promises Abraham and Sarah that he will miraculously make them fertile. They're about 100 years old. They're you know pretty depressed about it, about not having children. And God says, it's okay, I'm gonna give you kids. But he doesn't make the same promise to the eunuchs. He doesn't say, okay, I'm gonna miraculously now make you fertile, you'll now be accepted by everyone, and now you'll have kids, and you'll no longer feel like shame about it. Instead, God says, I will give them something better than sons and daughters. So God's not trying to fit eunuchs into the dominant paradigm of procreation of family. God's saying, I'm gonna give you something better than. So if we abstract a little bit, what this means, I think, is that it's not, this is not entirely a story about inclusion by way of assimilation, meaning the people on the outside get access to what's inside because they conform to the not dominant group of power. It seems like, I mean, the eunuchs do have to observe God's covenant, they do have to observe the Sabbath, but they're included as they are in their own bodies without having to change a thing. Which brings me to this point, when the church talks about, you know, accepting or including the LGBTQI community, t- the premise behind that question, or that discussion, is that we queer people should be grateful that the church has magnificently and generously let us in. And you know, I'm also happy to be here preaching to y'all, but uh, what if we flip the premise? Like, what if the church should be grateful in some ways for the gifts like queer community bring to the table? Now, many of you know uh, Dee. They've been at, church, at this church for a long time, and they're part of the asexual community in New York City. And they have a friend named David J, who has a whole Netflix documentary about him. So you should definitely check it out. Um, just Google asexual on Netflix. Um, and David identifies as asexual, meaning uh, does not experience sexual de- desire. Is not interested in sex. Like it's like interesting, but you know, it's not something that really animates him. And he has a partner. They have a romantic but not sexual relationship. And he, wanted, he wants children. He's always wanted children since the age of two. And his partner does not. And so they're kind of an impasse, right? She's like, no kids. He's like, I do want kids. And so by the dominant script of family, we would say, okay, sorry, David. Y'all, you're just a dry tree. But a few years ago, David's very close friends, a married couple, said, you know, David, we know we've known you wanted to be a parent for a long time. What if you become a co-parent with us? Move in. Split the child care bills. Wake up at 2 a.m. to bottle feed the baby. Um, you know, make decisions equally with us all the way until she goes to college. And David thought about it, and he said yes. And typically, was not a polyamorous relationship or anything like that. David is asexual, the whole point is not to have sex. Um, But it was a a co-parenting, poly co-parenting situation. In fact, David has recently actually uh, formalized, Dee was telling me, uh, legal adoption papers. So now he is the legal parent of his daughter, which is great. And it's, I think, a beautiful arrangement because it allows David to fulfill his deep desire to be a parent without forcing his partner to do something she doesn't really want to do. It also allows his friends uh, more sleep, uh, more savings, and just more quality time as a couple. And I think when you don't really fit into the dominant script of family, of procreation, or gender, you're awakened to the fact, you're, you're awoke to the fact that you have more choices. And I think you know, Merrill-Webster defines queer, and some of you may wonder, look, why do I use the word queer Isn't that kind of a slur? Um, I think we're trying to reclaim it in some ways in a modern age, and this, this next bit will tell you why. So Merrill-Webster defines queer as something differing in some odd way from what is usual or normal. So kind of strange, peculiar out there. And you could argue then that what David J and his friends were doing is queering the family script. And I think what the LGBTQIA community at large brings to the table is we awaken everyone to the fact that, hey, why do we have these scripts of who, someone, if you have this kind of body, you do this kind of thing, and this is how family is, this is how marriage is. Are they, would a different way make more sense? Are these scripts helpful or harmful? When should we tweak them? When should we keep them? When should we discard them? And I think that's actually a very liberating thing for everyone. But I think what queer people also bring specifically to the church, um, not just society, is a vision of what radical grace looks like. So let's return now to the book of Acts, and let's see what happens. So the eunuch and Philip are having a nice little Bible chat, and then as they are going along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw Philip no more, and went on their way, rejoicing. So this is the first recorded baptism of a non-Jew in the New Testament, and is the baptism of a black, queer, or trans person. So that's like has really profound implications. Um, I don't know why we're talking about Romans 1 when we could be talking about this. And I particularly love this passage because the eunuch doesn't say, you know, I really like this message, I really would like to be baptized, but I, I know there's some like historical and legal precedents preventing me from being baptized, so I, I, why don't you all do a little scripture study, maybe like convene with your councils, do a little general session, maybe a little vote, um, and then when you're ready for this change, just like shoot me an email, I'll, like come over to Jerusalem. The eunuch just says, there's water, I'm gonna get baptized, nothing's stopping me from doing so. And I feel this is the, the most radical posture, to declare, I'm blessed, as I am, as a child of God, and you know it, so I'm ordering you to baptize me. Okay. You know, the unit literally commands the chariot to stop. Like, he's the one, they are the one in charge of what's going on. And the reason why I feel this message is so important is because I think it is the hardest message in the world to internalize. Like people really spend years or thousands of dollars in therapy, or hours of phone call with their friends, to essentially get to a point Will you stop punishing yourself for not being good enough? And to finally accept, maybe even love yourself. And this is something obviously that everyone struggles with, queer or not. And I think this divine message that we are irrevocably loved no matter what we do, what we perform, was, I think, too good to be true, like too good to believe. And the church felt, you know, let's to make this message more plausible, let's add some extra roles. It's kind of like the opposite of a sugar pill. In this case, the sugar is too sweet, and people don't believe it's good for you, so to add some like bitter stuff, some, some kales, what have you. And so I think that's how you get like weird ideas combined together, like God's love for you is free, but it's not cheap, or you get sort of like, God loves you so much, and if you don't believe these things, you'll be tortured, and it's just like, how do you get both of these things in the same message? Um, and I think it's, we do that because it's so much easier to follow these rules of what to believe and what to do and not do than to believe you're, like, eternally loved. You know, like, that's crazy. Um, so o- over time, I think this gospel message of unconditional love kind of gets warped into this weird, like, soul watchers program where we're trying to figure out, like, am I good enough for God? And we create all these, like, little hoops that we have to jump through. And then these queer people show up, these eunuchs, and they're just like, look, We're here in our own bodies, we're blessed, and there's nothing I have to do to prove it to you. And no matter what verse you can throw at me, I know who I am. And I think the subversion of queer people bring to the church uh, is is it reveals that the hoops we've created, the rules we've created are lies. And not just in our church, but also in our society, the idea that if my body looks a certain way, if I get a certain person's approval, my parents, my father, my boss, then I'll finally be happy, I'll finally be deserving of love. And maybe these are the lies we have to give up for Lent and not sugar. Although, I guess that's good, too. Um, But I think the powers that be uh, can't handle this message, right? Because if they really accept this, if they really accept this message of radical grace, it means that they will have to not only stop judging other people, they'll have to stop judging themselves. And that freedom feels too scary, so they decide it's better just kick people out. And I think my, my friend... Van, who's actually in, this, in the service today, they told me a few weeks ago that when the church kicks queer people out, and this is actually what's inspired this sermon in some ways, when the church kicks queer people out, they're kicking out the very people who know what radical grace looks like. They are kicking out the prophets amidst the mist who are awakening the community to their, their bars, their, their modes of self and collective imprisonment. So I think the church is in need of a kind of salvation. And this divine message that we are immeasurably loved, irre- irrevocably worthy without having to do or achieve anything. is not only radical in kind of capitalistic, competitive, meritocratic age, um, but it's also r- super relevant for the, ch- for the church as it is today. Because we are all, in, in that sense, in need of a salvation. And I'm gonna end with this verse. My dad is always loved, my dad's a big preacher, a big missionary and evangelist, and I've always uh, shied away from it because it has all this like weird imperialistic baggage um, but lately I've started to reclaim it in a certain way and I'm going to read it out to you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So my prayer for you, all is, um, is that we hear this and we live it out today truly uh, from now on for the rest of Lent hopefully um, and for the rest of our lives. I'll, I'll pray for, to close this out. Um, dear God, thank you for the riches and treasures in your scriptures um, and the many layers of the ways in which you are speaking through us, to us, and calling us into new life. Um, may we put away the and die to uh, the lies we've created for us, the ways in which we punish ourselves, the ways in which we uh, tell ourselves we're not quite good enough um, and tell other people they're not good enough um, and to, in order to live into who you've called us to be. In your name, amen.